This episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 15th of March 2022 at home in Wicklow. And it is uh, an exploration of philosophical aspiration as channeled through a love of sport. <laughs> and my case studies for this episode and this thesis are Marcelo Bielsa, the recently sacked manager of Leeds United Football Club. Um, also Tottenham Hotspur, my own beloved football team. I look at the uh, the other Premiership clubs, Newcastle United and Chelsea Football Club also. And how they are a reflection of something very unwell in in football. And I conclude with uh, a brief look at the Australian cricket legend who passed away last week, Shane Warne. And I'm looking at all of these uh, entities or individuals and I'm placing them into a discussion of platonic principles of perfection and specifically referencing Plato's theory of forms and how all fans of sport in general uh, enter into this relationship with the teams and players that they love and how there's a, a symbiotic um, edification um, that happens when football reaches the pinnacle of its expression. Um, so... Yeah, this episode is sport heavy. I do I do start off with 10 or no, maybe 15 minutes or more, maybe 20 minutes even um, in the world of movies. Um, and I you know, talk a little bit about the, the career of William Hurt, who passed away um, just the other day. Uh, would you believe I have more to say about the power of the dog, the Jane Campion movie? There's a bit of a um, little bit of controversy following that one. Um, so that's there as well. So um, we've got sport, we've got philosophy, we've got movies, we've got a blurred line um, about expectations, what we expect from these people that we follow, who you know, these people who are in the, the public eye um, and the sort of censorious cancel culture that can attend their their uh, their legacies. Um, so that's um that's in there too okay i will see you there real soon cheers Ooh, not gonna change my mind leaving the dream behind hi my name is dara clear and you're listening to the clear out how are you how's it going are you in touch with yourself not in the physical sense you know that's something you can do in your own time but this is my time. <laughs> Don't be in touch with yourself right this second. Well now, well now, here we are. It's actually a nice day. And by the way, when this is uh, when this is going out, um, it's actually St. Patrick's Day. So happy St. Patrick's Day. Law Fela Patrick. Isn't that nice? An old national holiday to celebrate. Celebrate getting rid of those snakes. Celebrate the Holy Trinity. What is the Holy Trinity nowadays? Are we uh, going back to 
God the Father, the Holy Spirit, the God the Son, all of that kind of stuff, the spiritual faith inside. Do you have a trinity in your life, a trinity of beliefs, a trinity of faith, a trinity of practices? What informs that in yourself? Does it take a is it you know is is it a is it a a god shape what sort of shape does it take is it connected to a higher power is it something you return to is it something that girds the loins of your soul as you stumble forward through this thing we call life that's that's a very private matter so you know you don't have to share that with me um now today today spirituality of a different kind belief and faith of a different kind it's going to be a tapestry it's going to be a tapestry i'm going to drag in some different threads to weave through this tapestry of connection and I'm going to jump around a bit, jump around, jump around, jump up, jump up and get down. That's what's going to happen. And the area I'm going to look at is the meeting point of philosophy and sport. (laughs) It remains to be seen how successful I am in exploring this point of connection. Uh, But... That's not going to stop me trying. It hasn't before. Why should it now? But before I go into that, before I before I jump in, before I jump into the sweaty world of sport, I'm going to I'm going to start with um, the world of the arts, the world of cinema, and for the is it the third week in a row? the third episode in recent weeks a quick a quick reference a quick shout out to the power of the dog again the jane campion revisionist western i heard it described on another podcast today as an anti anti western and that's a-n-t-i not your uh your parents um sister not that aunt anyway the anti anti western apparently the power of the dog found itself in the headlines again the awards season is upon us in the world of movies and the power of the dog is doing rather well but at one of those ceremonies i'm not sure which i'm not following things that closely but this was brought to my attention today uh jane campion the new zealand director of the movie was speaking and she was acknowledging the the uh you know the brilliance of the williams sisters because there is another film out at the moment uh, starring will smith as the father of venus and serena williams isn't that movie called king richard and i believe it's very entertaining i believe will smith is meant to um put in a, a career best performance i'm not a big fan of will smith um i was when he was starting out i've touched on this before if you follow the podcast will smith to me 
epitomizes a disease in <laughs> that's very extreme but anyway i'll go with it he epitomizes a disease in uh screen actors especially a lot of hollywood actors that disease is the desire to be liked it is an addiction to cuteness and will smith talented as he is and he undoubtedly is a very talented actor and always has been a very talented and charismatic performer. He has, in my opinion, an unfortunate tendency to lean into cuteness and, you know, a, a very a very kind of committed likability. Now, you could argue that's just his personality and that's what comes through and that is often the case with a lot of screen actors in American cinema. They are fundamentally playing versions of themselves. Uh, and maybe, you know, you could argue a lot of naturalistic acting um, is that. But Will Smith's thing is he never quite goes to that place where he's not likable. Um, and I think it is to the detriment of a greater level of grit and gravitas and reality in his characters um and it has kept me resisting him for his entire career really barring some early stellar work anyway jane campion made a comment at this award ceremony and she gave a shout out to the williams sisters and said you know venus and serena you're marvels but you haven't had to, I can't remember her phrasing exactly, but basically she's saying you haven't had to fight against men the way I've had to, or you haven't had to play against men the way I've had to. And it caused, it's caused quite the kerfuffle, apparently, and upset a lot of people. The, um, you know, that's a, that's a red hot issue in, in the world of tennis, um, you know, equal pay for female players and aspersions have been cast against, you know, players on the women's tour for not being as tough uh, or having the same stamina as their male counterparts uh, in the Grand Slam competitions where they have to play five sets of tennis and women play three instead of five. And then the argument is, well, why should women get the same prize money? And I'm not that interested in that, really, the, the you know, the, the, the rights and wrongs of that argument. Um, but the the comment from Jane Campion just seemed to be really tone deaf. And I don't know, just a strange, a strange kind of meeting point or, you know, clashing point of different types of uh, feminism, perhaps, like my white woman struggle in a world uh, dominated by men uh, i.e. movie making and how much harder that road um, has been historically for female practitioners of you know of, of any of the disciplines connected to movie making whether actresses or cinematographers or directors or whatever um Jane Campion was kind of going, you know, my struggle has been tougher than your struggle as two black women succeeding at the very highest level of a sport that has historically been exclusively white. Um, 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure how. I just don't know how strong a, a case Jane Campion has. And I don't know what she was trying to achieve with that comment. Um, kind of throwing shade on the Williams sisters. Um, maybe bigging herself up in a bit of a, a wrong-headed way. And it just seemed a very unnecessary thing to say. It does not detract in any way from the brilliance of her picture, her movie, her motion picture, her moving picture, the movies, the talkies, the flicks, um, which is uh, still a great movie and well worth checking out um, if you want to go and immerse yourself in a very moody and tricky western and see what those people get up to power of the dog it's out there it's on netflix you can check it out um so that's one that's one little story that's one little story from the world of the arts the world of the movies jane campion putting her foot in a bit putting her foot in it a bit and maybe the speculation is that might have harmed the movie's chances of winning the best picture oscar which it had previously been hotly tipped for the other front runner is apparently a movie called Coda, which I have not seen yet, but it's a sort of an indie, an independent kind of feel-good movie. Coda, C-O-D-A, stands for Child of Deaf Adults. I think that's right. Um, so it's, um, yeah, it's a picture having a good close-up look at that experience. And, you know, being hailed as, you know, a great depiction of what it's like to be deaf which um, is strange because this is only coming a year after the really interesting uh, deaf-focused movie Sound of Metal, um, which was just out last year with a brilliant performance, central performance by Riz Ahmed as a heavy metal drummer who finds himself going suddenly deaf and struggling with that and resisting it and fighting it with every ounce of his being. And that um is one of the most interesting um soundscapes one of the most interesting um sound editing um you know achievements i've ever heard in a movie um so that's another movie well worth checking out sound of metal uh just really to focus on how the sound people attached to that movie brought that reality to bear uh, you know on screen to go this is what it's you know this is what it could be like this is what it is like and you know absolutely um brilliantly done um yeah so there was that i um also wanted to quickly mention um william hurt william hurt is no longer with us he passed away at the relatively young age i would say of of 71 and for a while there was no bigger actor it seemed in kind of middlebrow highbrow movies coming out of hollywood in the early to mid 80s um he was just the guy getting a lot of those thinking man roles the sensitive thinking man um I always liked him as an actor. He had a sort of a, he did have a bit of a coldness to him, you'd have to say, but he was good. Like he sort of, he did draw your attention. There was a sharpness to him. There was a 
sort of a, he could be sarcastic there was a kind of an inherent softness in him as well but um he played some really kind of tricky characters uh very memorably uh he was in kiss of the spider woman um as a, a gay prisoner who is sharing a cell with a political prisoner who was played by Raul, the late Raul Julia um i think sonia braga was in that movie as well um and yeah it looked at their relationship which became sexual i remember seeing that at a young age i mean oh this is this is very interesting this is very grown-up stuff uh he was also great in broadcast news as a very sort of mm, slippery and kind of dishonest uh newsreader who was you know hugely ambitious and willing to set ethics aside just to get a great story um famously his that that famous you know scene in the movie where he's exposed faking tears um as he conducts an interview uh with somebody just to get that big you know tv moment um it's a very funny movie as well and very much of its time holly hunter albert brooks great in that um but one of my favorite william hurt performances came a lot later and that was in 2005 in David Cronenberg's A History of Violence, which stars Viggo Mortensen, um, Aragorn from the Lord of the Rings movies. Um, if you're not familiar with him, you should be familiar with him. Come on now. Come on now. Viggo, he's got a great look. Always brings something good to the screen. Brilliant as a wheelchair-bound um, criminal in Carlito's Way from 1993. Uh, not quite so memorable um, for the right reasons as a kind of a drippy Amish guy in Peter Weir's Witness. Was that 1985? <laughs> go back and go, oh, there's Vigo before he's kind of getting those grittier, more interesting parts. Um, but yeah, Vigo Mortensen in The History of Violence is a former, a former heavy, a former violent criminal who has reinvented himself and is living a very quiet life down in the countryside in kind of midwestern america and uh he finds himself dragged into the limelight when he suddenly has to call upon his former violent skills to dispose of two very nasty characters who come into his his small town diner and start terrorizing the staff and he um he dispatches them with a uh a surprising um brutality that the locals had no idea he was capable of and it's a it's a brilliant starting point for um how his his um his new identity is kind of exposed for what it is and what it does to his family and how some old enemies come out of the woodwork to track him down and it all ultimately leads to um a a great showdown with his older brother played brilliantly by William Hurt as um, as this kind of uh, mafia you know gangster chief um, and he just I don't know what you know William Hurt the decisions he made but um, it's a very memorable it's a short role short appearance but absolutely brilliant and distinct and I was like oh wow William Hurt bringing it Anyway, there you go. So poor old William, he's gone. 
I did see a tweet. Um, I did see a tweet uh, a day after he died. Uh, someone pointing out, let's not forget that he was very abusive to his then partner, the deaf actress Marley Matlin, um, with whom he starred in Children of a Lesser God, another mid-80s uh, movie, um, for which she won an acting award, uh, an, you know, an acting Oscar. But I understand William Hurt just had a very troubled, a very troubled relationship with, with alcohol and wasn't a particularly nice guy and you know he was in some pretty unpleasant relationships and conducted himself badly uh but i also understand that he came out of that emerged out of that and owned his owned his failings owned his past made amends in whatever way he could and i just kind of i don't know i saw that tweet and i just i just thought i don't know is like i mean what does this achieve? Like, what are we trying to do? I mean, can people make mistakes? Can people have been wrong? Are we allowed to have done stupid things in the past? And, you know, what do we achieve by going, ah, ah, now hold on, before you start going on about what a great guy he was and what a lovely actor he was, let's not forget he was really mean um, in his relationships. And, you know, let's just be very clear here. That's not to become an apologist for any form of abuse it's certainly not being an apologist for um any form of misogyny or physical or emotional abuse of a person or of you know of a woman in a relationship but it just seems that maybe that's where people jump to very quickly um but it just seemed it felt like maybe william hurt's body wasn't even cold and someone's going hold on just be careful, you know, just add this little asterisked note to his eulogy, please. Let's not forget. I'm like, really? I'm not sure. I, I find, I, I don't know, it, I, 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 that, that bothered me. And, you know, it does raise the question. It does raise the question of, you know, what do we expect from, you know, from, from, from public figures? What do we expect from actors? What do we expect from people who spend a lot of their time in the public eye? Are we really, truly holding them up to be morally um, bulletproof? Are we saying, you know, I, I don't know how to conduct myself in life and I look for my moral and spiritual and, and ethical guidance from Hollywood actors or premiership footballers or, you know, there's a there's a there's a flaw in that frame there's a flaw in that way of thinking and it's not to say that we can't be critical of behavior that we don't approve of it's not to say that that can't be in the mix but this kind of zero-sum game you know you make a mistake you show a moral failing as a human being and then that's it you're done which is, you know, I mean, it, it, this is one way of describing what we call now cancel culture. It's, it's, it's just a slippery slope. And again, as and, I, and, I've, and I've touched on this position in previous episodes, it's just a facile, oversimplified matrix to drop onto human behavior. And I just think, I don't know. 
at the end of the day, you've got to just look at your own behavior, conduct yourself the way you think is appropriate um, and then see what happens from there. And I don't know, like what is achieved by living out moral outrage in a public domain? And it's hard not to suspect in many cases. And this is part of the Internet age. This is part of where people are living out their lives um, on, on social media. It's hard not to feel that people are going, oh, I just better make it clear that, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm, I'm one of the good people because I'm saying this and this is my response. And, you know, it's so it's hard not to feel that there is a very sanctimonious tut tut kind of energy from that. And personally, I don't value it. I don't value it. I mean, perfect humans don't exist. That's a it's a nonsensical idea. Um and I think we have to look at people in you know, we can look at them in totality and kind of go and, and just look at them in totality with a sort of a an honest all seeing gaze that doesn't always have to bring judgment. It doesn't always have to bring censure. It can be, yeah, okay, well, no, that's a that area I don't love so much, but this area was fantastic. I mean, it's, I suppose at the end of the day, it comes back to what are the, like ultimately, what are the consequences of that behavior? Ultimately, you know, how has that person continued to conduct themselves? Um, I mean, if you're talking about someone who never changes their behavior, and continues to act in a way that is reprehensible or offensive or troubling. That's different. That's a different argument. That's a different case study. But if we're talking about people who've had episodes in their life of um, of what? Of, of human frailty, of addiction, of, you know, of prolonged... Um, you know, behavioral dysfunction that's a product of self-loathing. I don't know. I, I mean, I just don't know. I don't know if they if they deserve to be, you know, excoriated for that. Um, people people mess up. People don't behave well. Um, but isn't that isn't that just being human? Um, yeah, I don't know. Again, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to. It's not meant to be like a, uh, I don't know what the right word is, what the right phrase. I'm not just trying to kind of, you know, wash over it all or cover it up or, you know, make it just a bland non-issue. But um, yeah, I, I think, I think you get, it. I think you, I think, I think I've made my point. Okay. So look, there we go. That was just meant to be a few minutes, but um, a few minutes quickly becomes many more than that when I'm ranting. Now. I've got a few different things to talk about that connect to the world of sport. And and again, it, it connects to what I was just saying because it's about this idea that we can project an expectation and a desire of perfection onto, uh, onto people who do things that we love. Okay, so there's a connection back to 
William Hurt. There's a connection back to Jane Campion. Um, but I'm talking about sport and there's three or four different individuals or entities, maybe a few more actually, that I'm going to talk about in the uh, the latter part of the, 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 the podcast now. So, I said I was going to talk about this meeting point between philosophy and sport. And here's my thesis, okay? Here's my thesis. Sports fans, whether they know it or not, are philosophers. They are embodying a philosophy when they watch sport, when they love a particular player, when they love their team, regardless of the code, whether it's rugby or Australian rules football, whether it's cricket, whether it's football, whether it's Gaelic, whether it's hurling, basketball, it doesn't matter. Basketball, American football, baseball, it doesn't matter. We, and I'm speaking as a sports fan, I'm speaking as particularly as a football fan, um, I'm also a bit of a cricket fan, a bit of a rugby fan. Um, they'd be probably the three sports I'd be inclined to, to watch most. Um, we project something onto these teams that we follow. And what we are projecting is this desire for elevation, a desire for transportation and transformation to to lift us into uh into a sphere of experience and into a sphere of appreciation of human achievement and collective human achievement and um a sort of a a, a symbiotic relationship between us as fans them as players and the sport they are playing and this sort of will to send our energy our desire our enthusiasm as fans out there onto the the field of battle the field of play and for that energy to transfer into the players into the team into the individual to help them elevate their own innate talent and the innate talent of their teammates or if it's an individual sport we're talking about tennis players maybe or golfers maybe you know whatever it may be and that collectively this this kind of synchronicity of energy and desire and love that they can become an a sort of a um a conduit of sporting greatness and a conduit that will produce sporting perfection and we will all benefit as a result we're all elevated that it is an edifying enriching soul stirring experience for all of us and we're all tapping into it that's the that's the theater of of sport that's the theater of sport just like when you go into a theater so to see actors to see a play 
you go to a live music event, there is, there is a pact. There is an agreement. We're coming in. We're going to give you our energy. We're going to sit in these seats. You're going to do something and something alchemical is going to happen. Something's going to transpire between you, the performers, reciting lines, acting out roles, embarking upon and engaging with the drama of somebody else's words and us agreeing to go on the journey with you that when that's done well there is um, a liftoff and something happens in that space that that affects us that gets inside us that moves us and my argument is that there's a crossover that that if this happens in sport as well um, I mean, the only difference is when you go to the theatre, you're not wearing, you know, the, the, the uniform of that particular theatre company. You don't have a song or chance to cheer them on. You're not maybe drinking beer and eating meat pies or sausage rolls or you know whatever your food of choice is when you attend sporting occasions. Um, and you don't scream at the... <laughs> you don't you don't scream at the actors on stage to do better um and you don't roar at them uh, and cheer and jump up and down triumphantly and hug the person beside you uh, when an actor does particularly well with a particular line reading or soliloquy um or a bit of stage business um but apart from that exactly the same <laughs> okay so look my case my case studies here my case studies here right i'm going to be talking about marcelo bielsa the recently fired manager of leeds united football club in uh, the the english premiership i'm also going to talk about shane warne the recently deceased australian cricket player i'm going to talk about the football club that I support, Tottenham Hotspur, Spurs, uh, as they're more affectionately known, um, who also play in the English Premiership. I may, I, I think I'm probably also going to talk a little bit about Chelsea Football Club and Newcastle United Football Club, also two Premiership clubs who, for different reasons, are very controversial at the moment different but similar reasons are very controversial at the moment and um, yeah there'll be some other related personnel that get mentioned now when i when i'm talking about philosophy i'm specifically talking about the platonic idea so coming from plato and plato's theory of forms which fundamentally if you are not versed in ancient Greek philosophy, it's a very simple idea. Plato offered this idea that everything that we see on earth and every human interaction is merely a facsimile, merely a copy, merely an imitation of the perfect form of that thing or that feeling which exists in a higher realm and a way to build ourselves as people 
a way to edify ourselves is to contemplate these higher forms these higher ideals of things that are in existence and he used the allegory of the cave um, to try and illustrate how we mistake you know, we mistake the copies for the real thing in life and it was a very simple idea it was a very simple idea there were people uh, his his little allegory was that there were people in a cave now for some reason I think they were why do I think they were prisoners I'd have to I, didn't, I haven't revisited this before um, before recording today so I'm just going to give it very roughly but the very simple idea is there were people who lived in a cave and they used to see shadows cast on the wall of the cave and they thought wow that those shadows that's that's the real thing that's the real world these are things of beauty and things of worth but of course what was happening was the sun was shining into the cave and shining over those objects and casting the shadow of the real thing onto the cave wall but the people who were in the cave mistook those things for items of worth they mistook those things for things that should be valued things that were beautiful things that were good and were stimulated and satisfied by those things by those things and plato was saying yeah but like this this you know this if this this is reality this is what humans do we think oh here we are and everything's lovely and that's perfect and plato's going no all we're looking at are imitations we're looking at cheap copies of the true thing and as i said before we will improve ourselves by seeking understanding and contemplation of those real things and in a way i suppose his he was advocating for you know remove those scales from your eyes open up see the world as a, you know you know see the real thing understand what you're looking at is not the thing of value and so you're always pursuing that higher ideal now i have to say generally speaking i would probably consider myself a platonist in this regard and then you might by extension go well a platonist is therefore an idealist and sometimes that's a dirty word but i like it i think that generally fits with my philosophy um of what i what i seek out in the world what i try to encourage in myself and i find it motivating (laughs) and frustrating at the same time and that's my relationship with martial arts which i've explained before the pursuit of karate is a long learn a long you know a, a lifelong commitment to never arriving a lifelong commitment therefore to never reaching the destination and a lifelong commitment to always being frustrated but accepting that challenge of but maybe i'll get a little bit closer today maybe i can achieve the perfect form today Uh, i won't (laughs) i know that to be true but a little bit closer perhaps so if we take that idea then if we take that philosophy from plato and then apply it to how we enjoy sport i think that is the relationship that's central 
to the relationship many fans have with sport the vast majority of fans have with sport we are looking for that perfect form that perfect representation that idealized representation of what the sport can be at its best a type of poetry in motion a poetry of physical and energetic achievement physical and energetic um, harmony and there's a spiritual element to that as well and because of that it's often a story of character it's often a story of personality it's often a story of individual human will and determination to overcome to strive to be better to push harder to try and be faster to be more combative more more physically determined to get over the line and sometimes it's just about guile and smarts and intelligence and instinct in the moment now these people i mentioned earlier marcelo bielsa an argentine man in his i guess in his 60s i'm not sure what age he was but he's had a long career in football management he didn't have a stellar career as a player but he came to leeds football club about uh, about three years ago i guess it was and leeds had you know leeds is considered one of the you know traditional big clubs in england with a long uh, and storied history um john giles great irish player famously played with, with one of the most successful leeds teams back in the day um that day was the 60s i believe and um leeds in recent in recent times you know which is the nature of the modern football game um they had gone down in the leagues and were hadn't been hadn't been a fixture and in the top level of english football for 16 years but this determined incredibly focused um you know leave nothing to accident manager came in and got leeds out of the second tier of english football the championship um, and got them promoted back into the Premiership, which is where many Leeds fans would, I'm sure, have felt they've always belonged. Get us back up there at the top table, because that's where we should be, because we are a big club. Now, that story in itself isn't that interesting, because you know other teams have gone down, they've been relegated, and they've come back up with different managers. The interesting thing about Marcelo Bielsa is he changed the whole culture of the club by dint of personality and his personality was something that was almost universally loved because here was a man who had no interest no interest whatsoever it seemed in the the glitz and the glamour and the great financial rewards and trappings of the football life um i mean this is a sport that is just dripping with enormous quantities of money and everything that that money can buy all the drama all the uh all the you know the the, the high-end lifestyle the big splashy headlines the cars the houses 
and a lot of messy behavior from you know often you know as is the case with a lot of professional sports you know young men young men with you know too much money and not enough sense and that lifestyle and that excess of money that has flooded into the game over the years often means the uh, you know football seems to be the last thing that um you know that does well so these young men get these huge contracts and their lives are transformed and they're they're living that life and the money there doesn't there doesn't seem to be a correlation often with that that money and success on the pitch very very few it's a very small number of managers who really achieve the top things in football it's a very unforgiving sport and you know and in england um it is it's a very competitive game it's a very competitive attritional sport and it's hard to stay up um it's hard to stay up in the top league and it's also hard to stay up in the second league there's a lot of quality there's a lot of quality down through the leagues and a lot of clubs with big histories and Leeds for years and years and years were just I don't know I mean it's not for me to say I'm not a Leeds fan and I have a couple of friends who are devoted dedicated Leeds fans um, so it's not for me to cast aspersions and say what Leeds were and were not but I just know they weren't playing in the premiership and that's where the that's where the big games are that's where the big money is Um, but they were basically you know failing they were failing to find their way back up let's put it that way but this man came in Marcelo Bielsa and he came in and he had a moral code and he had a way of applying himself to the job and bringing his own code into the squad of players that he took over uh, to show them this is all going to be about hard work it's all going to be about the team and better than that and more striking in the modern age of cynical football it's going to be about the fan base it's going to be about the community it's going to be about the city it's going to be about where you are from where you are playing for and it's going to be about connecting it's going to be about connecting with the people and conducting yourself in a way that the fans can be proud of and on the pitch you are going to work your asses off you are going to work so hard to get results and it paid off it paid off and Leeds came back up into the premiership and last season was their first season back up and they finished in a very very credible uh, ninth position there are 20 teams in the league and really uh, probably just considered okay you know, almost almost a triumph, you could say, on, on one level, to come up from the championship and finish solidly in mid-table, not fighting for survival at the bottom. And, you know, there were incidents along the way. Um, there were incidents. He, um, in, I think, might have been his first season um, when they were still in the championship. There was a famous incident where the opposition were outraged when... Leeds uh, failed to kick the ball out of play when an opposition player was down injured and they proceeded to go on and score a goal and that's a sort of an unwritten rule in football in England Um, if a player goes down injured even if the ball's not out of play 
there's an evident disadvantage um, for your uh, you know opponent, and so the sportsman-like thing to do, the sporting thing to do, is to volunteer to put the ball out of play so the player can receive medical attention, um, rather than taking advantage of the situation. You have an extra man. The opponent is distracted by their uh, teammate being down and going on to try and score a goal. Uh, so Leeds on that day they did the unsporting thing because the referee didn't blow the whistle to stop the game and so referees will sometimes you know take the initiative and go yeah I'm stopping the game so this guy can get attention the referee allowed play to continue the Leeds players went up and scored a goal and the opposition it was Aston Villa I think went mad um, and you know a little melee ensued and Bielsa was so horrified at the idea that his team could be perceived to be um, unsporting um, to put it another way that they could be seen to be cheating and very much going against the spirit of the game that he insisted that his players give the ball back to the opposition at the next opportunity and to step out of the way and allow them to score a goal to cancel out the advantage his team had got and this is just the kind of thing you just don't see <laughs> and people are like my goodness uh, Marcelo Bielsa is a man of honour um, there was another another incident where Marcelo Bielsa's uh, one of his um, staff members was seen looking at an opponent's training ground um, session standing outside the ground on public ground with a pair of binoculars looking at the training session and then the um, the assumption was he was going back then to report all these details to Bielsa so they could better plan how to play against these opponents and again Bielsa was accused of all sorts of kind of shenanigans and dirty tricks and dodgy behaviour. Um, and he was so disgusted at the possibility that he had behaved in a, a dishonourable way that he conducted a press meeting and showed um, all his analysis of the opposition from available footage and broke down everything with absolute transparency, how he perceived the other team to play and what their strengths and weaknesses were and basically brought in you know media to go well this is how i conduct my analysis and i always look at other teams that's just standard practice and um, i've always done that and i'm not getting any extra information that i don't already know and you know let me just demonstrate that um and again it was another indication of his absolute sort of transparency and willing willingness to be to be seen and to be exposed and to basically invite people in and go, well, this is how I conduct my business. Um, and to add to the Bielsa legend, instead of staying in some fancy digs, instead of being put up in a fancy schmancy hotel like some other managers have been for other clubs, and I'll, I'll give you an example of that in a second, he chose to stay in a rented apartment above a sweet shop in a neighbouring suburb of Elland Road where uh, the Leeds football stadium is and he'd walk 
he'd walk to work or he'd take public transport he'd uh you know grab his coffee or his groceries from the local shops and was very much available to the people in the community for chats and photo opportunities and whatever else he was it was just football just i don't need anything else what's the shortest way to get to the stadium i can be close to the players and i'm just going to get on with stuff um he yeah (laughs) He, he drove a he had a car and again nothing flash no ferraris or lamborghinis for bielsa just um a little four door hatchback nothing nothing fancy this was um an incredibly focused man um to give you a counterpoint to that um jose Mourinho, the portuguese manager who had a stint at my club an ill-fated stint at my club he was also the manager of manchester united for a while he was a london-based um a london-based guy and he was because he had been managing chelsea football club he was also a manager of real madrid for a while but um, when he came to be manager of man united he was like i don't think i'm going to move to manchester so maybe you can put me up in a hotel while i'm here and depending on what reports you read some will tell you he was staying in a hotel suite in manchester at a cost of over a thousand sterling a night um, other reports more modestly uh, cost it at 600 pounds sterling a night and he he stayed there for two and a half years <laughs> and the, the the bill in the end the, the well if you went with the lower estimate it was 537,000 sterling um so that was in a way the anti bielsa um so such a great guy now he got fired because ultimately in football particularly in the modern age of football it really doesn't take very long for football results to go the wrong way for the tide to turn now it's my impression the fans had not given up on Bielsa at all he was still very much their man and players have spoken about the enormous positive impact he had on them um but the results hadn't gone their way. Defensively, they were letting in a lot of goals. To use uh, the typical footballing term, they were hemorrhaging goals. And partly this was because they had a lot of injuries to their key players. They didn't have a very deep squad um, in terms of having high-caliber players available to them to replace those who were injured. And it just took its toll and also the nature of how he played football this high pressing high energy game it is very hard to sustain and i'm going to return to that in a moment because one of his disciples was also um, a manager of my club tottenham hotspur and yeah there's there's a cost to that style of play players just get knackered and they can't sustain it after a certain period of time anyway he got let go less than a month ago and the feeling really across the the football world and certainly most particularly with Leeds fans was just one of terrible sadness (laughs) football really football is in a filthy filthy state 
football is so doped up with money from every available source that football has no moral code football has no moral heart football is sick it is a sick diseased thing and basically the kind of the the, the clubs that have come to epitomize this sickness are the clubs that have turned a blind eye to where they have found their money and at the moment with the conflict uh, between Ukraine and Russia playing out Chelsea has found itself at the centre of this controversy because Chelsea for almost 20 years has been owned by a Russian oligarch um, by the name of Roman Abramovich and Roman Abramovich has just had all of his assets seized. Now he came in and after a year or two at Chelsea all the money he was able to invest in that club and the calibre of player and the calibre of manager he was able to attract and which has continued to do so over the almost 20 years that he's been in charge there has led Chelsea to being one of the most successful teams in England over the last 20 years Uh, with numerous trophies and premiership wins and Champions League wins Um, and there's a direct relationship to the investment of a Russian oligarch's money which comes from again I'm not an expert in these things but it's not clean money let's put it that way um so and this is this is kind of the model of the new sort of super clubs where enormously wealthy individuals or conglomerates take over and just pour the you know quantities of money into a club that other clubs just can't conceive um Another club in similar territory at the moment is Newcastle United. Newcastle United have been taken over by a fund that is owned by Saudi Arabia. The country, the government of Saudi Arabia own this fund. And Saudi Arabia has been at war with Yemen for the last seven years, conducting you know, an extremely aggressive military uh, crusade, shall we call it, uh, against the people of Yemen. Um, I think one figure I saw was up to a quarter of a million people have been killed, Yemeni, Yemenis. Um, and Saudi Arabia is given a pass in a way that Russia has not been because Saudi is an ally of the UK. And the UK has supplied or so, well sold arms to Saudi Arabia um, to help them wage their war. Um, so there's a you know there's a, a double standard here. Now Newcastle were a team just struggling and have been struggling for years to achieve anything of note. Um, and you know I'll, I'll quickly jump in there and say you know Spurs, although often you know, higher in the table. We haven't achieved anything of note ourselves, but we're not owned by or haven't been doped up by a corrupt uh, regime or a regime or a country that's guilty of huge human rights infractions. Um, And 
this is the new landscape in football. It's the new landscape across, you know, football. There are other teams who are high, have similar amounts of money from similarly dubious sources. And the fans typically don't take a stand against this. They're like, well, look, it is what it is. It's a very sort of disingenuous, jaded, cynical kind of position uh, that goes, what can you do? It's the nature of the game. We just want to see good football on the pitch. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's the way to go. Um, and I think that does feed into, this does feed into the, the platonic idea. And I'm going to argue that one of the reasons there was such deep sadness and a kind of a sense of betrayal, um, a sense of a sort of a deep wound when Marcelo Bielsa was sacked by Leeds a few weeks ago, was that Bielsa represented an antidote to all that shit. He represented an antidote to that type of corruption that type of double standard, that type of disingenuousness. He represented the good. That's my argument. Marcelo Bielsa represented the good. And every Leeds fan and many other fans of football that don't support Leeds football team, they recognised it. They saw it. They saw the decency and the humility and the passion and the single-minded conviction, the morality of this one man who, by extension, then lifted not just Leeds United, the football team, but the whole sort of fan base and community around that team. And it was a brilliant and beautiful thing. A brilliant and beautiful thing to go, what are Leeds doing? What is Bielsa doing? How are those people getting on now? And it's it's over. There's a new coach. Wish him the best of luck. <laughs> but there's no way in hell he's going to represent the same thing. He's not going to represent this man who lived above a sweet shop in Leeds, who walked to work. I mean, he's almost like a you know a South American version of um, of Ted Lasso, the, uh, the the fictional American coach in, um, in that TV show. You know, who, who's dropped into the Premiership with no knowledge of football, but is the man of the people. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to diminish uh, Marcelo Bielsa in any way by by that reference. But there you go. I think he represented the platonic good on so many levels that this is what it should be about. This is what football should be about. It should be about this honesty of endeavour and this honesty of conduct and this higher aspirational principled approach to what many call the beautiful game. So Marcelo Bielsa, go well. I hope you're happy wherever you are now. You are missed by non-Leeds fans as much as Leeds fans. Okay, so there's that. Now, I've had my go at Newcastle and Chelsea 
and I'm going to quickly I'm going to quickly kind of conclude with um, a quick word on my football team before I get to Shane Warren to wrap up today's episode so I have been supporting Tottenham Hotspur Football Club Spurs for over 40 years and I have supported them with different levels of enthusiasm and commitment and attention, you know, depending on whatever stage of, you know, life I was at. I'm probably, (laughs) I'm probably more fanatical about them now than uh, I ever have been. Um, Historically, if we go back to the idea of a platonic principle a platonic ideal the character traditionally of a spurs team has been good football aesthetically pleasing football beautiful football and sometimes that beauty or that style has transcended other deficiencies in the team sometimes it's been enough to win us the occasional trophy um but over the last 20 years uh, trophies have not really been a feature the last time we won something was in 2008 so uh, 14 years ago that was a League Cup trophy we beat, we defeated one of our London rivals Chelsea in that competition in the final and you could see what it meant to those Spurs players who had never won anything um, so apart from that there hasn't been, there haven't been many glory days. We've been, and I mean I refer to this on an earlier episode of the podcast. Spurs have failed to deliver. We are perennial underachievers. I mean that's what people say. I mean you know it is what it is. This is the nature of modern football. We try to run a financially sound club, so we don't get ourselves into huge debt in terms of. Uh, the amount of wages we pay, the the big players that we sign. We don't do that. We try to kind of attract young talent, homegrown talent, academy players, uh, affordable transfers. And it keeps us sort of financially honest. But sometimes that picture is reflected on the pitch. Um, my cousin here at Hashtag Blessed, I hold him responsible for making me a Spurs fan all those years ago. He too, he too is a is a fan of this perennially disappointing team Um, he pointed out that if Spurs currently have spent the 6th or 7th most uh, on player transfers they've spent that much that's our sort of player budget and you take wages into account probably that's where we'll finish in the league 6th or 7th the teams who have spent most money are finishing in 1st and 2nd and 3rd uh, and they're playing better football because they've got a better calibre of player in their squad. Um, but once again, to bring it back to this this philosophical idea, Spurs then, we hope, will recreate those glory days. 1981, they won the FA Cup. They beat one of the current big teams, Manchester City, in a a FA Cup final replay. And at that time, Spurs had one of the best footballers England had ever ever produced, a great midfielder by the name of Glenn Hoddle. 
Uh, we had a couple of good Irish players on the team. Uh, Tony Galvin in midfield, Chris Hewton in defence. And we had two stellar Argentinian talents, Osvaldo Ardiles and Ricardo Villa. And they contributed memorably uh, to the style of football that Spurs were playing at that time. We had a great forward from Scotland, Steve Archibald. Um, and we were a flashy, stylish team. Now that year we finished 10th in the league. Um, I think Leeds finished above us. Uh, they finished um, finished 9th. There you go. Um, um, but that was kind of the, the germ of this kind of idea that I had back then. I was like, oh wow, Spurs, you know, we're, we're a tasty, stylish team. And there's always been that about us, you know. We've always had some of those players that, you know, raise the level aesthetically that are capable. David Ginola, famously a French player who played for us about um, 20 years ago, uh, late 90s, he did a season or two with us and played some great football for us. Um, at the moment, we have one of the best strikers in England uh, in, in our team, Harry Kane, who is a wonderful passer of the ball. Um, funnily enough, he's, he's, he's an interesting looking character. He could be uh, a First World War infantryman or a guy who's working down the garden centre you know carrying plants to the boot of your car so he doesn't have that flash you know good looking swish look that a lot of modern footballers have but he is one of the best players in the league um and you know we're sort of missing that level of talent elsewhere we have to do a great south korean player also who is not really in great form at the moment but anyway look whatever i'm not going to bore you i'm not going to bore you with a uh a player by player breakdown of who is um committing footballing atrocities um at the moment spurs this team that i love where are they going at the moment why does it hurt so much why are they not satisfying satisfying this desire that i have that that desire that longing for something beautiful to transpire on the football pitch when your team is playing for me and for every other Spurs fan at the moment that is just uh, an exercise in intense frustration Spurs are currently just heartbreaking in their inconsistency they go from flashes of being brilliant um, and beautiful on the pitch to being utterly incompetent and um clueless and just to, to and they just seem to lack character which again brings me back to this relationship this philosophical relationship because if i'm supporting a team that has no character what the hell does it say about me this is the fear of every football fan it's like my does my my, my choice of team is a reflection of who i am and Spurs are so grossly, offensively inconsistent currently um, that I almost can't bear it. And we have come out, you know, we're, we're coming on the back of a relatively recent period of being a really, you know, a, a really competitive, driven team. And do you know who our manager was when we were that competitive and that driven, where we had an identity, where we had a character? Our manager was a man called Maurizio Pochettino. 
and he by coincidence was also an Argentine or Argentinian I never know which is the correct the correct word to use there and you know who his father figure was in footballing terms Marcelo Bielsa so Pochettino brought that same attitude that same sort of emotional honesty and transparency to how he played the game and it's not perfect it's not perfect idealists always get burned (laughs) on a pyre of their own idealism Um, but for a while Spurs were one of the hardest working teams in the premiership we ran we competed and we were a unit we were a team and we held our heads high and when we failed it wasn't because we hadn't given absolutely everything we had to give on the pitch um and that was very much connected to Pochettino and by extension very much connected to Bielsa which I didn't know at the time it was only afterwards I got to realize that uh, Bielsa was Pochettino's mentor and it was Bielsa who recruited Pochettino as a young kid to football to professional football he visited his family home at two in the morning and asked the mother I want to see his legs pull back the covers I want to see his legs and by Pochettino's own account, he said he was looking for a professional footballer's legs. What he saw were a fat boy's legs. Nonetheless, he did end up playing for Bielsa and uh, became um, a very well-respected defender before ultimately going into to management after his playing days were over. Um, so Spurs have been through three managers since. We are currently managed by um, Antonio Conte, a fiercely passionate driven Italian coach who has had great success wherever he's been and it looks like Spurs and this current squad of players are his kryptonite we appear to be killing him with our inconsistency with our inability to act out his wishes if that is what we are witnessing I'm not sure we just might not have uh, a great caliber of player at the moment and it bloody hurts and it hurts me to see Antonio Conte crushed and demoralized it looks like we are breaking him and he is confessing in his uh, in his press conference press conferences I don't know it might not be the players it might be me maybe I cannot do anything with these guys and you're going oh my sweet Jesus has it come to this are Spurs yeah are, are, are we just manager destroyers um and that to me is a reflection of, 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 of no, where's the character? Where's the character? Where's the moral character? Step up and deliver. Fight. Fight for your teammates. Fight for the win. I don't know. This is a malaise that doesn't just affect Spurs, but it does affect them at the moment. And um, it's not pleasant to watch. And hopefully better days will come. And I can see something resembling platonic. <laughs> platonic perfection on the pitch and across a whole season of football um yeah okay so listen to conclude to conclude today's episode just a few minutes a few minutes on the late great shane warne shane warne died um about a week and a half ago uh of natural causes he was only 52 he was one of the greatest cricket players of the modern era he 
came to fame, really. He, he announced himself uh, on the test cricket scene. Test cricket. A game played between two teams over five, up to five days. Played all day, every day, for five days, if it's a fully competitive game. Um, a much beleaguered, um, lampooned game by those who don't know cricket. And Shane Warne was definitely one of the forces that re-injected Test Cricket with something resembling stardust. And he is credited with delivering the ball of the century in 1993 in, a, in an Ashes game. So the Ashes is the, 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 the game of Test Cricket, the series of Test Cricket that is played out between Australia and England. And that consists of five tests played alternately in England and Australia every couple of years. And um, in 1993, Australia were the guests. They were visiting England. And Shane Warne, as a young player, and his gift was spin bowling. So you get fast bowlers in cricket, fast bowlers, you can imagine, sprints up to uh, the, the, the crease, to the wicket, and let's rip with uh, a deadly, accurate, extremely fast cricket ball, intending to either dislodge the bales from the stumps behind the batsman, or to trap the batsman in front of the wicket by catching him on the leg before his bat has made contact with the ball. The batsman has to try and hit that ball as far as he can, either to score runs, or just to protect himself and his wicket, or herself and her wicket, if it's the women's game. Um, but Shane Warne, his skill was spin bowling, which is a very different delivery, a slower delivery of that very dangerous missile, the professional cricket ball. And yeah, he famously delivered this ball against a... Uh, yeah, one of the England legends, a player called Mike Gatting, um, a very credible uh, batsman. And Shane Warne launched that ball from his wrist. It landed outside the wicket, seemingly, you know, heading off t towards, you know, some distant region. But then once it landed and bounced, it jerked back in. It seemed like two feet back in the opposite direction behind the batsman. And knocked off the uh, the, the the bale off um, off the stumps to to send that send that cricket player back to the dressing room, and the batsman Mike Gatting just stood there in disbelief because it was so extraordinary what had just happened. The amount of movement that Shane Warne got on the ball simply hadn't been seen before, and people were just hysterical about it and. Um, it was, yeah, as I say, it was it was the announcement of a type of cricketing genius. And his nickname, amongst others, one of his nicknames was the King of Spin. Uh, I saw another credited nickname, the Sheik of Tweak, <laughs> which is quite nice. But Shane Warne was just this incredibly skillful practitioner of spin bowling, wrapped up in a very unathletic looking body a little bit pudgy and at the time 93 there he was with his kind of his mullet and he was always a bit sort of boisterous and blokey and liked to dish out abuse on the cricket pitch 
and he loved the celebrity that um, his skill brought, you know, that, you know, that his skill brought to him. And he lived out a very high profile, messy celebrity life. And there were affairs and beautiful women and drunken nights and lots of kind of controversy attended his, you know, his, his public life and his escapades and misadventures. But he was an extremely consistent player on the pitch and continued to deliver until he retired in 2007. Um, He was, he he amassed a huge amount of of, uh, test wickets um, and was only outstripped in, you know, numerically by um, Muralithian, isn't he, the Sri Lankan spin bowler. Uh, But he occupies uh, a very special place in the heart of cricket fans and again there is something again about that platonic ideal of this is something we can't quite understand this is something that we can't emulate but watching it being a witness to it lifts us being a witness to this high art in display on um, the field of combat uh, was a beautiful brilliant thing and Shane Warne was kind of a confounding figure because there was something about his personality that just didn't quite gel with that genius that he had in his wrists. And it probably frustrated the snobs of the game. It probably frustrated the students of the game. It probably frustrated the academics of the game. Those who wanted to wax lyrical and, like me, maybe philosophize about the wonder of Shane Warne because he was just a guy who kind of made a tit of himself and liked to drink and get pissed and be a bit of a womanizer. Um, but he was sort of charming with it. He, you know, he, I, I don't know. He, he, you know, when I lived in Melbourne and he's a Melbourne guy, sometimes I felt that people were a little bit scathing of him as just being a bit of a, a bit of a joke and a bit of an embarrassment in ways. But um, certainly after his death at that, you know, tragically young age, um, the eulogies have um, have flown have have flown freely, and he's been kind of given the the, the credit um, that he was always due. And I think you know it, it was certainly credit that he got while he was alive. And there, I watched a documentary about him um, that came out earlier this year. Um, and again, I didn't get a sense that he had a huge sort of insight to to his own gifts or he certainly didn't seem to have the capacity to articulate his own you know magical relationship with those skills or you know his his relationship to the game so there was something about him that felt a bit frustrated um in that inability and i mean i'm 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 saying i don't think he would have put it that way but i was like he can't express in words or in language what he had like that poetry flowed from his hands um and so he was a sort of a, a slightly contradictory figure but um yeah i don't know it, it, it's in there as well like that again i'm bringing it back to that idea of of platonic greatness platonic perfection and maybe it was ironic in this case that in shane warren's case it didn't come in a package that would have represented that to us aesthetically um, and that made it all the more confounding, all the more perplexing, all the more exhilarating and fascinating and wondrous. So, um, yeah, 
it's worth looking that one up look it up on um, look it up online the ball of the century Shane Warne the king of spin and see if you can tap into what I'm talking about even if you've no interest in cricket whatsoever okay I'm going to leave you I'm going to leave you with that one there um, and I'll be back I'll be back next week with um, something non-sport related I'm sure thank you so much for listening you can throw me some love on social media I'd love to hear from you on social media um, yeah. <laughs> give a response even if it's please no more podcasts about sport and especially no more about cricket you can find me at the clear out podcast on facebook on youtube on instagram you can find me on twitter at the clear out too you can email me at the clear out live at gmail.com and if you want to support the show financially economically with that thing they call money You can do so using the supporter link, which will be there in the description wherever you're listening to this podcast. Or you can use the Patreon link. That's patreon.com forward slash the clear out. I'd welcome anything you can give to help me keep this thing going and help me in my my faith that this is a sustainable project and benefits more than just myself. Okay, thanks again for listening. You take care of yourselves and I'll talk to you real soon. All the best. Bye.